Dear God, thank you for all of the mothers in our lives, those you have entrusted with the care of your most precious little ones, for those women who gave us life, and also those who have acted as our mothers by giving us comfort and guidance and by being our caretakers, those who are part of our chosen families. Thank you for those beautiful relationships. And we thank you for creating each mom with a unique set of gifts and talents. We also pray today for those who find it to be full of sadness or disappointment. Stay by them, wrap them in your love, let them weep on your shoulder. You are the only one in this life that will never disappoint us. Your promises are sure and your love is steadfast. Let us stay ever watchful for your return with readiness and anticipation. In your name, amen. So we have a couple of ways to give. You can support PBC by texting the word give to the PBCC number on the screen. You can give online or you can put an offering in the box at the back. And now I'm going to read a scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians. And these passages are a reminder to keep ourselves alert for the coming of our Savior. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like others do. Stay alert and clear-headed. Well, brothers and sisters, I think the theme for today is bittersweet. Um, it's a word that keeps ringing through my head as we worship together, as we spend this time together, um, and even as we enter our time in scripture this morning. Uh, it's bittersweet. I, I personally want to wish a fond farewell to the Hibberts. Our time um, overlapping was not very long, and yet it was very impactful for me and meaningful. I've received a lot of encouragement from both of you, so I'm grateful for you. I also want to join in our honoring of the women among us today, the life givers with us this Mother's Day. And that includes, of course, my own wife, Hedin, mother to our children, who God uses every day to give life to our family. Now, with that said, though, uh, perhaps this is also part of the bitter. Our thoughts have been with another family this week, a family separated from one another without having had the chance to say goodbye. And neither will this family be able to celebrate Mother's Day together ever again. This family was among the victims of the shooting last week in Allen, Texas, and it resembles our own. They were also Korean American, also four members, wife and mother Cindy Cho, husband and father Kyusung Cho, and their two sons, ages three and six, just like ours. All four were shot by the gunman, and Cindy, Q, and the three-year-old, James, all died from their wounds. And they are survived by their six-year-old, whose name just happens to be William. 
It was difficult for us to process this news when we heard it. And as the pain rippled through Herin, mother to our own six-year-old William, I couldn't help but think that this is part of what it means to be a mother, a life giver today. It is to live in this excruciating tension between child rearing and family burying, this tension between new life and old evil. And it's enough to draw from us the Apostle Paul's prayer in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Now we've all had reasons to turn to this prayer, haven't we? It is what we pray when life startles us with tragedy and reawakens us to the truth that things are not as they ought to be. It is what we pray when we are reawakened to the truth that the future holds for us a greater life in a greater kingdom ruled by Christ, the King of Kings. But it doesn't have to be tragedy that reawakens us. Sometimes it's simply a change. Sometimes it's something good. Sometimes we catch a glimpse of Christ's beauty or feel for a moment the weight of Christ's glory and it's enough to wake us up from spiritual slumber and to stir in us that longing, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But whether triggered by tragedy or by joy, perhaps in these moments of reawakening, we wonder how we could have fallen asleep in the first place. How could we have forgotten? That feeling of realizing you'd fallen asleep only because you've woken up, have you ever felt that way spiritually? Do you ever feel like you have been spiritually sleepwalking through life? Now I have felt this many times. In the short time that I've walked it, I have found that the Christian journey begins with an awakening to the reality of Christ and his return, and continuing in it requires subsequent reawakenings. And I have found that though it is not about our performance or merit, continuing in the Christian journey requires that we do those things that help us reawaken again and again. I'm sure many, if not all of us, also have found this to be true. And if so, we're in good company. This was the Apostle Paul's conviction as well and his exhortation to the Colossian believers. Let's look at our passage for today, just a single verse where Paul gave the Colossian believers a command that summarizes the applicational heart of the entire letter. The command is simply this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Setting aside for a moment the fairly straightforward command to pray, let's focus on the second half of the verse, beginning with the phrase, being watchful. What does it mean to be watchful? What does the original Greek mean? Well, be watchful is how the New International Version renders the original Greek. But look how the Living Bible translates it. Don't be weary in prayer, keep at it, watch for God's answers, and remember to be thankful when they come. This translation suggests that Paul was concerned about the Colossian believers noticing and being grateful for God's answers to their prayers. It's an interesting take. But the contemporary English version takes a different approach. Keep on praying and guard your prayers with thanksgiving. Notice the difference there. The idea here seems to be that Paul wanted the Colossian believers to be careful not to allow ingratitude to enter one's prayers. Those meanings are quite different, aren't they? 
Now, we at PBCC may not use the Living Bible Translation or the contemporary English version very often, but their existence raises the question, why is there such a range of translations for this verse? Well, it's because the Greek itself is vague, at least on its own. The issue is that the word the NIV translates as being watchful seems to come out of nowhere. The NIV, therefore, translates it sparely, leaving as much room as possible for interpretation. So does the ESV, the English Standard Version. Continuing, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The New American Standard Bible follows suit, only replacing watchfulness with alertness. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Even the King James Version tries to let the verse speak for itself. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now perhaps this little survey demonstrates the difficulty with the idea of letting the verse speak for itself. Verses of the Bible cannot be translated in isolation. They cannot be understood without understanding their context. Their meaning cannot be perceived without taking the time to examine how the words and ideas they contain would have been understood at the time they were written. Now this might seem like a controversial thing to say, but it's a reality we experience every day. For example, imagine I sent you the following email. I got fired today. I hope this is not prophetic. <laughs> I have not received this email yet. <laughs> but let's say that you got this email from me for whatever reason. If that's all my email contained, how would you interpret it? Perhaps you take from it that I'd lost my job. But then you'd notice he's still sending this from a PVCC email address. But what if you knew that, and so what if you knew that it wasn't true, that it wasn't true that I had lost my job? You might then read my email as a joke or as a prank, not a particularly creative one, but a prank nonetheless. Or maybe you'd assume, give me the benefit of the doubt that I had left out a word that I meant to write, I got fired up today. There's a textual issue with my email. You'd wonder what got me so excited. Or maybe, just maybe, you'd heard that I was moonlighting as a stuntman, and you took from my message that I'd been fired from a cannon today, presumably across several cars in the PBCC parking lot. <laughs> now my point is this. Without understanding the way I tend to use my words, without understanding my situation at the time of writing, without understanding the different ways the word fire can be used in 21st century American English, a reader cannot safely assume they understand my message. In other words, there is no plain reading of this sentence. We might feel like there is, but that is only because of the assumptions we bring with us to the text. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, there is no plain reading of scripture. There's only thoughtful reading. There's only careful reading, contextually aware reading, historically informed reading of scripture. And that is why we do this together as a community. As tantalizing as it is to defend the idea of plain readings, the fact is that scripture came to us embedded in times and places and syntax and grammar that need to be understood if we are to perceive and receive what it has to say. And our verse is an example of this. 
What does it mean to be watchful, as the NIV puts it? Is it about paying attention to answered prayers? Is it about protecting our attitudes while in prayer? Now, while these are good things to do, are they what Paul meant to communicate in this verse? Well, the context of this verse suggests otherwise. As we've seen together, the context of this verse is Paul's meditation on the reign and the return of Christ. Could watchfulness, then, have something to do with awaiting the return of Christ? Could it be an echo of Colossians 3, 1 through 4? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Could watchfulness, like setting our hearts and minds on things above, could this be a metaphor for living in readiness for Christ's return? This would be consistent with the way the Greek word translated as being watchful, gregoruntes, is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Perhaps the most famous use of this term is in Matthew 25, 1-13. In these verses, Christ is recorded telling the parable of the ten young women. Let me remind you of how it goes. Ten young women, members of a bridal party, were waiting for the bridegroom to arrive so that they could get the wedding started. For whatever reason, the bridegroom was delayed in coming, and the young women fell asleep as the lamps they had lit to light his way burned. At midnight, the bridegroom approached, and the young women awoke and checked their lamps, and to their dismay discovered their lamps had run dry. The wise among them refilled their lamps with extra oil they had brought along with them just in case. The foolish had nothing. So they went out into the streets to look for oil. When they finally returned, the bridegroom had already arrived and the wedding festivities were already underway and the door was already shut to outsiders. In Christ's words, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Christ spelled out the moral of the parable. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. The phrase keep watch translates the root word used in our passage for being watchful. In the parable, it implies wakefulness and alertness in contrast to sleepiness and unpreparedness. Christ used the word as a metaphor for living in readiness for his return. And this was how the apostle John used the word in the letters to the churches in Revelation. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Note how watchfulness, wakefulness, and awaiting the return of Christ are tied together again in this passage. And note how Paul used that same root word in exactly the same way in his letter to the Thessalonian believers. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. 
Having considered the context of Colossians 4.2 and considering how Paul's language in the verse was used by his contemporaries, Christ and John, and how Paul himself used the term in other places, we can safely interpret Colossians 4.2 in this way. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful for the advent of Christ, preparing yourselves for the second coming, living in readiness for the bridegroom's arrival, staying awake to the reality of Christ and his return. This was Paul's command. This was his meaning. And this watchfulness is to be accompanied by thankfulness. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. For Paul, the return of Christ was worthy of thanksgiving. It was the believer's primary source of hope and peace in the present darkness. Thus, Paul challenged believers to encourage one another with reminders of the return of their king. Again, 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And again, later in the same letter, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that is physically dead or alive, we may live truly together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. When believers set their belief on the return of Christ, it literally puts courage into them. They are encouraged because they know that this world is not all there is. They are encouraged because they know that the present darkness with its tensions and conflicts and anxiety and unfulfillment and pain and death and goodbyes and violence and shootings will one day end. All of that will one day end and the true life giver, God himself, Christ the Lord, will give them true life forever and ever and ever. Reawakening to the reality of Christ and his return rebuilds believers' hope and faith. And because of their hope and faith, their love as well. Encouraged to the point of thankfulness, believers are empowered to step out into the world with supernatural, self-denying agape love. Because of their belief in the return of Christ, believers are joyfully liberated from their attachments to this world. And they can thus use it, not for their present pleasure, but as a stage on which the goodness of God may be displayed through their lives. Far from being too heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Hope in the return of Christ frees believers to use all they have for the sake of doing good to others. This is what Paul had in mind when he imagined the believing community. A people who did not sleepwalk through life, letting their lamps dry out and their wicks burn, forgetful of the reality of Christ and his return. But rather, he envisioned a people who, like Christ on the cross, refused the numbing draft of worldliness, embraced the tension of life in the present age, and even rejoiced despite its darkness because of the hope they have in the return of Christ. 
And is this not what each of us desires for ourselves as well? To be the awakened of Christ, a people who can say goodbye knowing separation is only temporary, a people who can endure the shootings and the violence and the warfare because we know peace is coming, a people who can rejoice because they see past this world to the world to come, a people whose calculus for living is different from this world's because we have a different definition for success in this life. A people who can make the most of the time, not amassing wealth and resources that worms eat and moths destroy and thieves break in and steal, but seeking to receive and to share an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us by God. Do we not desire to be a people awakened by Christ? So why do we fall asleep? Why do we sleepwalk spiritually? If you fall asleep from my sermons, I totally understand, I get it. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a holy nap before God. But I'm talking about our spiritual awakeness. Why do we fall asleep? Well, because we've been prescribed spiritual sedatives by the world, and because it is so easy to overdose on them. What are these spiritual sedatives? Christ named a few as he warned his hearers to be watchful and awake. Once again in Matthew, for in the days before the flood in Noah's generation, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. I am fascinated by the way Christ characterized the generation of Noah. In Genesis 6-5, Moses described it this way, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, whenever I read the account of the flood in Genesis, when I read this verse, I think of the movie, The Pirates of the Caribbean and the island of Tortuga. I imagine the people of Noah's day living in this utter lawlessness, this violence and depravity, kicking and punching and spilling their beer and stealing each other's gold and shouting, arr, at each other from morning to night. But how did Christ describe Noah's generation? People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. I mean, that sounds awfully normal, doesn't it? We all eat and drink. And marrying off children suggests the existence of customs and traditions and institutions governing day-to-day -day life. Doesn't sound much like the island of Tortuga. It sounds quite normal, doesn't it? The plot thickens in the Gospel of Luke where Christ is recorded offering another illustration of the state of the world when he returns. He said it was the same in the days of Lot People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. I'm sorry, but eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting and building, these are not the activities people typically associate with Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet these are the behaviors Christ 
associated with the spiritual darkness of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the activities Christ said characterized the generation of Noah. Christ made no mention of Tortugan violence or sexual immorality. No, only eating, drinking, marrying, family planning, buying, selling, planting, and building. It's as if Christ was replacing the violence and sodomy we read about in Genesis with the normal things of normal life. What are we to make of this? Christ's point was that ultimately, the real violence of Noah's generation and the true immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah was the normalized, socially accepted, practical atheism that characterized life at those times and places. People were violent and lawless in Noah's day, and as wrong as that was, it was just as wrong in an ultimate sense that they lived their lives asleep to the reality of God. And people were immoral and abusive in Sodom and Gomorrah, and as wrong as all that was, it was also just as wrong at bottom that they lived their lives as if this life was all there is. As easy as it might be for good church folk to accept that Noah's generation died and Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown because of their abject wickedness, Christ called us to the deeper truth that the behaviors that we so easily condemn often share the same roots as our own normal, socially acceptable, practical atheism. A lifestyle that is preoccupied with the things of this world, however normalized, however accepted, and however much they are practiced, even within the church, ultimately stems from the same unbelief. Now, to be clear, eating and drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building, these are not bad things to do in and of themselves. But how easily and how naturally they can become all we think about, all we focus on, all that we live for. How quickly our days can go by as we go from task to task because the logic of survival and immediate success dictates that they need to be done. How deeply we can fall asleep to the lullabies of worldliness, filling our heads with thoughts of what we'll buy next, eat next, watch next, what we'll drive, what we will rent, what we will do for a living. Now perhaps you haven't felt this. Perhaps much of this sermon has not applied to you because you are spiritually alert and awake. And perhaps you have kept your lamp full and your wick burning in anticipation for the return of Christ. If that is you, then you probably know the answer to the question I hope the rest of us are asking, which is how do we stay spiritually awake? Paul, the ever faithful pastor, provides the answer in the beginning of our verse. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. Watchfulness with thankfulness is a state of being, and it is expressed and maintained in devotion to prayer. The word translated as devote, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, means to persist in adherence to a thing, to be to busy or occupy oneself with, to continue doing something with intentionality and great effort. The Colossian believers were to set an intention to grow in steadfast prayer, to resolve to make prayer a consistent and persistent part of their lives. Why? Well, because sometimes, brothers and sisters, in order to wake up, we have to close our eyes. 
Sometimes in order to wake up to the reality of Christ and his return, we have to shut our eyes to the things of this world, to turn from its incessant demands, to withdraw from the claims it lays upon us, and to return to that place where the unseen can once again be clearly perceived. Sometimes we have to look past the apparent necessities of our normal lives and set our eyes on things above, on our Father in heaven, whose name will ever be hallowed, whose kingdom is coming, and whose will is being done through the reigning and returning Christ. This is what prayer is, after all, a returning to God of the soul made acceptable in Christ. Prayer is a returning to God that reawakens us to his glory more than offering a list of wants and needs and to-dos to God. Prayer is reawakening to the reality of Christ and his return in resistance against worldly sedation. When Christ taught his disciples to pray, half the example he gave them was focused on remembering the reality of God. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, at the risk of sounding impertinent, but because we need to be honest with ourselves on this topic, do we pray? And when we pray, do we give ourselves time and space to settle into the reality of the one before whom we offer our prayers? I tend to jump straight into what I have going on that day. All the problems I'm anticipating, all the needs I think I need him to meet. I launch right into my complaints and my frustrations and before I know it, I'm making demands of God and setting expectations for him. But then the gentle, yet firm voice of God interrupts me. Eugene, let's try that again. Look at me. Remember who I am and what I've done. Remember what I've said that I will do. Settle yourself into my reality first. When I obey, my prayers change. The things I want to tell him change where at the very least they start to come out of my mouth differently. The crises facing me seem smaller and the people I wanted to curse become human beings again. Thankfulness grows. And along with that thankfulness, a curiosity, curiosity and wonder at what God is doing because now we're on the same page and we're centered on the same thing. This is the purpose of prayer, brothers and sisters. It is to reawaken to the reality of Christ and his return. In prayer, we look to the unseen so that we may see what is seen differently. And if this is the purpose of prayer, then it can be done in whatever way helps us achieve that purpose. We can pray on our knees or sitting in our seats or standing up with arms raised. We can pray in our minds or with our words or at the tops of our lungs. We can pray with our eyes closed in a locked room and, or with them open while driving our cars. Please keep your eyes open while driving your cars, however much in communion you may be with the Lord. We can journal our prayers. We can write them out, pausing between each word we write to find just the right ones. Or we can simply groan because there aren't any. We can pray as we walk through our neighborhoods 
as we walk down the aisles at the grocery store. We can pray over the trails under open skies every weekend. We can pray at the top of every hour, and we can pray for hours on end. We can pray by ourselves, or we can pray with others. We can join prayer meetings, like the one that meets biweekly on Sunday mornings in room 104, or like the one that meets online really early in the morning on Tuesdays, or like HeartSpace, which meets monthly in the youth room on Sunday evenings to just spend time with the Lord. We can even learn about prayer and awakening to the reality of God through classes like our Knowing Rediscovered Connection group. The flyer is posted on the wall outside. However we do it, the point is to find a practice that we can realistically commit to and to do it. My most focused times of prayer are with my journal, a coffee, and a croissant at my favorite cafe. And I'm not ashamed to admit that the coffee and the croissant help me keep this practice. I'm not ashamed to admit it, and, I, and I'm not ashamed to admit that even with these incentives, it's still hard. It's still a decision. It's always a decision. It's always a choice I have to make, a self-interruption I have to endure, an intention I have to carry through to action. I rarely find myself accidentally in prayer. And perhaps you can relate. There are just so many things to do especially if you are a life giver and you have people depending on you for their lives, whether literally or figuratively. There are tasks that need getting done and problems that need solving and fires that need extinguishing and babies that need de-bluing. How can I do it all if I spend my time praying? Well, brothers and sisters, we must remember that in choosing to pray, we are doing the thing that makes doing the other things possible. It may not feel that way in the moment because we have an outsized sense of our capacity to live on our own. But this is the truth. We are doing the thing that helps us make other things possible. We are doing the thing that helps us discern what actually needs doing. We are doing the thing that gives value to what we end up doing because we are doing the thing that helps us reawaken to who we are in Christ. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. It's a simple command, but this ends up being the applicational thrust of the entire letter to the Colossians. Everything else fits under this umbrella, being awakened to the reality of Christ and his return. So let's start doing that now. Let's take a moment right now in this space to reflect on what we've heard this morning. And as the Spirit leads us, let's pray. We're gonna start off with a little bit of silence because that's usually where we are on our own during the weeks. In a little bit though, um, I'm gonna ask the praise team to return to the platform and to lead us in worship. But for now, let's sit in the presence of God and bring our hearts before him allowing him to reawaken us to who he is. If you're ready, you can join us as we close our time in the word with the prayer Christ taught us to pray. You can say this out loud, or you can say it silently to yourself. 
pay special attention to the reality it is calling us to recenter on. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you would like to receive prayer after service today, you're welcome to come up to the front left where there will be people to receive you. As you go out these doors, um, our life givers, our mothers, the women of PBCC, we have flowers that we'd love to uh, bless you with. Receive now, though, uh, the, this blessing word. As you go from this place, back into a world filled with eating and drinking, giving and taking in marriage, building, planting, and all the other things. As you go through these activities, which you must do, which God has called you to do, may you see past these things, through these things, above and beyond these things, to the reality of Christ's return, of the coming kingdom, and may that fill you with a thankfulness that propels you to live your life differently that brings you to the presence of God in prayerful reawakening to him. Be blessed. Amen. <laughs>